This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Don't you think it's about time we brought on some hosts of some other radio programs here on this station? We do. In years past, we've gone out of our way to bring on some of the other people who have uh, so graciously lent their time to host other public affairs programs here on KDVS. We've been at this for a dozen years, and several other hosts have been here even longer, included among them Dr. Andy Jones, the host of Wednesday at 5 p.m.'s Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, a show well worth listening to, as is Speaking in Tongues, hosted by Richard Estes. We've had Dr. Andy and Richard on this show in the past, and we'll do so again in the future, we hope. Kirsten's been doing This Week in Science for, I don't know, something like 14 years, although her current host, Justin Jackson, joined her a little bit later in the run. And at one point, he was my partner on one of the trivia teams we had over at the Bistro 33. We've had Dr. Kiki and Justin on this program, and we'll probably do so again in the future. We've also had uh, Pamela Sue Taylor, who was originally there, I think, Australian correspondent, and is now also our Australian correspondent. Pamela will be back uh, in the months to come. Gil Metavoy's program, Crossing Continents, is not a public affairs program per se. It's a music show, but if you've listened to Gil, and I hope you have on Saturdays at 4 to 6 p.m., you have heard some of his commentary about the politics of the Middle East. For our money, that makes Gill an honorary public affairs host, because his observations of what is going on over there are always on point. It's a hell of a deal, the station here, KDVS, operating 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And someone who is commemorating that recently is one of the new additions to the public affairs lineup, Conrad, host of Conrad's Corner. He'll be joining us in our second segment today to talk about to his rather curious history of how he came to arrive here in Davis. Rather uniquely, we have in the person of Conrad someone who's been at the Annenberg School of Journalism at USC and previously was on the air down there with uh, the previous incarnation of Conrad's Corner and before that was apparently over at UC Santa Barbara. That's going to be interesting talking to Conrad. You're going to want to stay around for that in our second segment. In fact, we're going to do what we can in the weeks and months to come to get you better acquainted through our show of some of the other people who are laboring here to produce the fine programming that you enjoy. In fact, between now and well into January, we hope to bring on probably at least one other public affairs host on every show to talk a bit about what they do. But let us start today's program as we like to start every program with a little segment we title On This Date in History. For it's our belief to understand where you are today in the world, you got to have some clues about what has happened before. And some things that have happened before, at least on previous December 4ths, which would include the fact that it was on December 4th in the year 771 that Charlemagne became the sole ruler of the Frankish Empire. I was pleased to note that according to the amateur genealogist in the family, we and I descend from Charlemagne, King of the Franks. And I got to tell you, I thought that was pretty cool when they found that out. But this got tarnished slightly when I discovered that basically it is alleged that anyone with European ancestry can probably claim Charlemagne as an ancestor. Apparently the good old King of the Franks got around and so did a lot of his heirs. On this date, December 4th in 1154, Adrian IV became the only English pope. 
And it was on December 4th in 1791 that the oldest Sunday newspaper in the world, Great Britain's Observer, was first published. And although it didn't happen on this date, in fact, it was on December 5th in the year 1933, we think it's worth mentioning that uh, the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, a prohibition, got officially repealed. So it was that America's first war on drugs, in this case alcohol, ended in defeat. We're still awaiting the moment when sanity may reign and... uh, its second war on drugs, let's just call it the war on marijuana anyway, comes to an end. It too has been somewhat of an amazing defeat. Of course, we should mention when we throw out opinions like that one, that it, like anything you're going to hear in this program, is an opinion that does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. It does, however, represent the opinion of Willie Nelson, who does note that our marijuana laws are terribly unfair. Our quote of the day comes from Quaker leader William Penn, whom Pennsylvania is named after. Said Penn, right is right, even if everyone is against it, and wrong is wrong, even if everyone is for it. Well, we're certain that's true, but the hard part comes in figuring out when it's right and when it's wrong, isn't it? To which we may want to add our quip of the day. We've used it before, but it's time to use it again. Author Saki once said, A little inaccuracy sometimes saves tons of explanation. A rule we sometimes live by here at Radio Parallax, and no, Mr. Millen, I can't explain that to you any better. All right, our joke of the day comes from David Letterman. This is also recycled, but it's so good, what the heck. This is inspired by uh, an article by Philip Marcello, which appeared in the Sacramento Bee, titled, Consumer Group Lists 10 Worst Toys for Kids. Noted the piece... A light-up bow whose arrows are advertised as flying up to 145 feet. And the Catapencil, a pencil with a miniature slingshot-style launcher at its end, are on the annual list of unsafe toys named last Wednesday by a Massachusetts-based consumer watchdog group. Well, you can look up their list at your leisure. We prefer David Letterman's top 10 unsafe toys for Christmas. And we'll do most of them. Like number 10, Junior Electrician Outlet Patrol. Then there's number eight, Black & Decker, Silly Driller. Number seven, My First Ferret Farm. Number six, Chimney Explorer. Number five, Remco's Pocket Hive. Number three, Roof Hanger Paratrooper Outfit. And the number one, David Letterman, Top 10 Unsafe Toys for Christmas, Will It Burn from Parker Brothers. All right, we like to do good news uh, segments every show, and I think during the holiday season we'll try and do two if we can, if we can find them. Here's a piece of good news. France's lower house of parliament voted last Tuesday to urge the government to recognize a Palestinian state. This could add France to the list of countries that are now recognizing the state of Palestine. Sweden started the trend. Great Britain added to it, and we hope it continues. And there's surely some good news in this. According to the New York Times, the spread of Ebola in Liberia has slowed dramatically thanks to medical intervention and community education efforts. The U.S. military has scaled back the number of treatment beds it's building there from 1,700 to 650 
and we don't know why that is. Still, health officials there say that there are more than 1,000 new cases every week in new in West Africa, mostly in Guinea and Sierra Leone. But, um, you know, we're grateful for the slowing in Liberia. And, and by the way, isn't this a legitimate use of the United States military? Aren't they supposed to protect us from foreign invaders? Well, I think the foreign invader titled the Ebola virus would be something to be worth spending a little dough on stopping. And uh, also a bit of good news that will serve as our anecdote of the week for today's show is the fact that um, apparently Harold Jaeger is famous in Germany now as the man who opened the Berlin Wall. On the evening of November 9th, 1989, 35 years ago last month, he was the East German officer in charge of the Born-Holmerstrasse crossing point. A crowd of 20,000 East Berliners had gathered at the crossing, chanting, Open the gate. With no clear orders from the top and fearing a stampede or a bloodbath, Jaeger gave the order to open the barriers. The people streamed through, shouting in celebration. He, at the time, was distraught. A dedicated communist, Jaeger had believed in the Berlin Wall. His quote is saying, We all thought that unlike the West, which still had former Nazis in power, we in the East were building a better Germany. I and the other guards felt the world was collapsing around us. We stood there and watched our fellow citizens leaving en masse. We cried. It was a terrible realization that not only the system and our leaders had failed, but we had too. Gradually, however, as the cheering and weeping people swept through, Jaeger realized he'd put himself on the right side of history. Jaeger said, The crowds won us over with their euphoria. We realized that they were overjoyed. One of the guards came up to me and said, Harold, I guess that was it with East Germany. And it dawned on me that it was. To which we at Parallax would like to add, and good riddance. I had a girlfriend once who escaped from East Germany, which is a story for another day, but unfortunately I have lost track of her, otherwise I'd bring her on this show to talk a bit about 1989 and what it means to have a unified Germany. Turned out in her case, her dad was from West Germany but fell in love with her mom and decided to give up life in the West for life in the East, which she said was hard. All right, let's do stats of the week. All of these come from the week Magazine, starting with this one, a reprint from TheAtlantic.com. 77% of all recorded music revenue goes to the top 1% of, mus- of musicians. Boy, that's an odd wrinkle on the stories about, you know, the top 1%, isn't it? Some of you who are knowledgeable about the music industry um, may know more about this. If you do, don't hesitate to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We'd, we'd like to know more about that. You know, I think we have a show at KDVS that may be addressed to uh, what goes on in the music industry. So maybe we'll hear from Tummy Bumper. <laughs> then again, maybe not. But I think we're going to try and bring him on next week's show because, uh, well, right on topic. Being that his show is about uh, the travails of someone uh, trying to make it in the music industry. That's my understanding anyway. We'll know more in the future. Anyway, stat number two, reprint from thefiscaltimes.com. Stat number two, according to thefiscaltimes.com, nearly a quarter of American consumers have less than 250 bucks in their bank account on any given payday. That's according to a survey from the lender Springley Financial. Apparently, 20% of those who earn $200,000 a year say they save rarely or not at all. And a quarter of those with graduate degrees said they couldn't miss a month of paychecks without needing to borrow or sell assets. Boy, I think there's some attitude adjustments that are needed out there in the financial world. Man. 
And finally, stat number three. This one should make you mad. We hope it does from Reuters.com. Apparently, seven of the 30 largest U.S. companies paid their chief executives more last year than the firms paid in federal taxes. Let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for fulfilling your bucket list with the news that a 100-year-old Tennessee woman who'd spent her life on a farm saw the ocean for the first time. Reportedly, Ruby Holt, after dipping her toes in the Gulf of Mexico, said, we don't have nothing like this in Giles County. And you know, I always knew there was something missing about Giles County, Tennessee, but I couldn't put my finger on it. No ocean, that's what it is. It was, on the other hand, apparently a bad week last week for Winnie the Pooh. After a town council in Poland nixed a proposal to adopt the character as a mascot for a playground because, quote, he doesn't wear underwear, unquote, and is of, quote, dubious sexuality, unquote. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for idiots in the state of Texas, or is there a redundancy in the phrase idiots in the state of Texas? I don't know. Anyway, the Texas State Board of Education apparently has approved new history textbooks that say the U.S. Constitution was based on the Bible. Now, a group of university professors have complained that the textbooks are filled with, quote, inventions and exaggerations, unquote, about Christianity's influence on the Founding Fathers. But Board Chairman Barbara Cargill said students will now learn about the country's Rich religious heritage. Well, okay, but history books are supposed to be filled with factual evidence. At least that's the goal. I want to thank James Israel for posting on Facebook some quotes about how America is allegedly a Christian nation. With the response, really? Let's see what they said. Starting with Thomas Jefferson. Christianity neither is nor ever was a part of the common law. Also, Christianity is the most perverted system that ever shone on man. How about James Madison? Religion and government will both exist in greater purity the less they are mixed together. How about Thomas Paine? All national institutions of churches, whether Jewish, Christian, or Turkish, appear to me no other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolize power and profit. And the case is not clear enough. How about our second president, John Adams? The government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. All right, let's do some follow-up. We've talked about fusion power on this program more than once. In fact, we once interviewed an author about a book on the topic, Charles Seif, S-C-I-F-E. You can find that on our uh, archives at radioparallax.com. He wrote a book called Sun in a Bottle, The Strange History of Fusion and the Science of Wishful Thinking we would note, did hold out the possibility for fusion becoming a reality. Well, New Scientist magazine is uh, titillating us a bit with this story. Said the magazine, fusion always seems to be 30 years away. Controlled nuclear fusion seems no closer to being realized now than when the idea was put forward in the 1950s. But fusion power stations might be closer than anyone suspect if we think small. The accepted wisdom is that bigger is better. 
But now, some are advocating that a smaller-scale approach could be swifter and cheaper. Last month, the aerospace firm Lockheed Martin claimed its compact fusion reactor design, small enough to hitch in a truck, could be ready in a decade. Of course, you have to add to that, yeah, we'll see. Of course, I did like a quote in the piece from somebody named uh, Tom Jarbo from the University of uh, Washington in Seattle. He said, plasma physics isn't rocket science. It's much, much harder. We've noted in the show that when people always say fusion power seems to be 30 years in the future and perhaps always will be, well, back in 1979, which is what, 30, going on 36 years ago, the Carter administration decided to defund much research into fusion, and uh, the Reagan administration followed suit with that, to which we had, gee, do you think the oil companies had anything to do with that? So instead of dumping lots of resources in a Manhattan, uh, Manhattan Project-style investigation as to how we could get fusion online, we have dithered. Let's hope that'll all change. We've also talked in the past about how uh, the international drug trade seems to be behind a lot of uh, what you might call deep political events going on around the world and, and have for decades now. And I would note by way of forward promoting that we expect to bring on Professor Peter Dale Scott of UC Berkeley to talk about that in the future. But suffice it to say now that, um, in case you're keeping score, the opium production in Afghanistan is at an all-time high. We smell a rat. Meanwhile, down in Paraguay, beset by allegations of numerous links to the drug tra- to drug trafficking, the ruling Colorado party a few weeks ago announced that an investigation into at least 40 of its senior members, including party members, members of Congress, and mayors. The investigation got sparked by public outrage of a killing recently of Pablo Medina, a prominent reporter who was covering the drug trade. Of course, we're glad to note that reporters that cover the drug trade never get sanctioned here in America. And yes, we are sarcastically referring to the sad saga of Gary Webb. In other drug news, I was talking to a drug addict recently, a smoker, actually, who noted that when he took a recent trip to Australia and New Zealand, he was paying something like, I forget the exact number, but it was something like $10 a pack for cigarettes, noting that the governments down under are attempting to uh, curb smoking by just raising the price for the addicting cigarettes. Now, apparently there's a move in California to raise our taxes on, on cigarettes, which B columnist Dan Walters opinionated uh, recently was just, just, you know, questionable issue. To quote from Walters, a new proposal to raise California's taxes on cigarettes by another $2 per pack raises a question. How far can a government go to oppress otherwise legal behavior it deems to be unacceptable without violating personal liberties? Yeah, blah, 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 Dan. A more lucid piece of writing by Luther Cobb, president of the California Medical Association and in the piece to the B, who noted that California spends $9 billion a year on health care related to treating diseases related to smoking. Taxpayers foot about a third of that. Tobacco-related diseases account for a staggering one in five deaths in the United States. Now, Dan Walters cited the figures that the cigarette taxes would be raised sharply, going from 87 cents a pack to $2.87 a pack. Walters also admits that California's cigarette taxes are now below the norm, lower than those of 32 other states. What's the deal here? I saw stats 25 years ago saying that uh, back then, to cover the costs, the health care costs of treating people that are dying and, and injured from, uh, 
from tobacco would be at least $3 a pack, which I guess would make it six or seven bucks in today's dollars. So in short, seems reasonable to me. And in some final follow-up, I want to talk about that provocative piece in the Sacramento News and Review from writer Joe Rubin about the scandal associated with the water metering going on here in Sacramento. And that story got some legs on it. Actually, uh, there was even a write-up in my local uh, neighborhood publication critical of the city's water meter program based on Joe Rubin's piece. And what you mainly get in those publications, of course, is boosterism and more boosterism. So I think it struck a nerve. I might as well quote from the piece. It was by a Craig Powell, described as local attorney, businessman, community activist, and president of Eye on Sacramento, a civic watchdog group. Come to think of it, that's who we quoted from <laughs> in their complimentary uh, evaluation of the News and Review last week. But said Craig Powell, it's not often that I publicly applaud the work of a fellow journalist, but we all may end up owing a huge debt of gratitude to investigator journalist Joe Rubin for his lengthy November 13th cover story in the News and Review. Again, he cites the fact that DeFresno did a similar move, put 100,000 water meters in, and spent $400 million less than we're going to in Sacramento. Well, city water officials went on the counterattack. Uh, piece in the Sacramento Bee December 1st by Matt Weiser and Ryan Lillis talking about how, well, Sacramento aims to speed up connection of water meters. The gist of it is they're apparently looking at uh, the possibility of not putting meters in the street, which cost a lot more, and thereby saving the city a great deal of cash. Uh, Cosmo Garvin commented on this uh, over on Facebook, said more from Joe Rubin's investigation of the city's enormously expensive water meter program. I don't know much I can say about Joe's experience with the city and the city's strategy for managing this story, but if you compare the bees version of the story to Joe's reporting, there's definitely some narrative shifting going on. And of course, you have to get into this whole idiot idea of uh, how it is we're going to save California's water problems by cutting out uh, the urban use in places like Sacramento by, by conserving a little bit more. Well, again, most of the water that's uh, used in California goes to agriculture. And just out of curiosity, I bought one of those little bags of Blue Diamond almonds and counted the number of almonds inside. Turned out, I got 49 almonds in that little bag, which represents... 54 gallons of water used to grow those nuts. So if by chance you feel guilty about using 35 gallons of water to take a bath instead of a shower, well, just fewer almonds. How's that? We've also got a piece we don't have time for talking about how much water goes into alfalfa, but that's a topic and a discussion for another day. Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. When we come back, we're going to talk to one of our fellow PA hosts, that is Public Affairs here at KDVS, and the person of Conrad Wilton, who on a weekly basis produces Conrad's Corner. He's doing a good job, and we're going to talk to him about it. Stay tuned. Old Dan and I with throats burned dry and souls that cry for water. The nights are cool and I'm a fool Each star's a pool of water Cool water And with the dawn 